I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Hi, and welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And this uh, time, this week, we actually have Ryan with us. And I have to say, this is one of the few times I genuinely, the first time you told me what your job was, I was like, oh, my God, I want that job. So (laughs) I can't tell you how excited I have been to have you on the show. Um, So we're going to start with the easy stuff, and then we'll get to the part that's probably really sexy for me. And I'm not sure how many other listeners are going to find it as exciting, but I... I'm totally going to nerd out uh, about everything that you do. So what is your job title? My job title is Associate Director of Learning Analytics at PPD. Okay. And what does that do? Uh, essentially, my I lead a department that is in charge of determining um, the efficacy of all learning across PPD. So being in the pharmaceutical industry, we do a lot of training. Uh, that's all regulated by the FDA and other regulatory agencies. So um, I'm making sure that all that investment um, into that training is the right investment and we're maximizing that um, and getting the most out of it. So here's why I geek out so hard about your job. Your job, just so that you know, for HR people is one of these jobs that we know exists. We know that you are out there, but all of the other HR people I have spoken to, of which I know many, have all agreed that we knew your job existed, but none of us had known anybody who had it before. You're like the NSA of HR in a way. Well, <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hear it merges in with talent analytics a lot and people analytics. So it's yeah. kind of a subset of talent analytics, I like to say. So. So how how did it come to be that you were the NSA of of learning and development? How did you find yourself in this position? Well, I I think it all started back when I went into learning um, back in I think about two thousand four. Um, I was in um I worked at Dell in the department that dealt with all of the escalations that got to Michael Dell and the okay. other executives. So we handled the, you know, technical side of any big account escalations, and they wanted to grow this team across the world. Uh, and so they said, we need somebody to kind of develop training around what the heck we do here, right? Um, so I, they picked me, and that's how, that was the beginning of how I got involved in training. And that kind of led to, after I did the curriculum build out of, of that department, um, the training department said, hey, come over to our side. And uh, that's what I did. So I, I went over to the training department and kind of the rest is history. You know, I did. I've done all of the roles in training uh, in the subsequent years up until about, gosh, when was it? 2000 and like 11, I think. Um, I was in training ops, essentially, and we we were doing lots of reporting and kind of looking at Kirkpatrick and different ways of determining the value of training. We had a big training budget at Dell, as you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, just they started asking about, well, what, how do we measure the ROI of this stuff? And um, we had brought in a director at the time who had an education doctorate and who had worked on that as part of her dissertation. Um, and that really kind of got me into learning analytics. And I led the program at, at, in Dell Services, and we had about 140,000 learners there. And, um, you know, we did about four or 5,000 instructor-led training sessions per quarter, a lot of training. And it was just me, one person leveraging kind of like this uh, training evaluation system that we purchased. And... Um, And, you know, I learned a lot the hard way there. And at some point, uh, one of my colleagues had left Dell and went over to this company called PPD. And he asked me, hey, they really want to do here what you've done there. You know, would you like to come over? Um, And, you know, I've been at I've been at Dell 12 years at that point. And I thought, I'll take the plunge. I need to change. 
<laughs> so. That is so I for a long time as part of my recruitment life I I did training and I worked with the the largest recruitment company in the world and I developed and delivered training for them and so I do know a little bit about this space um from a hands-on perspective of knowing that efficacy and training is I mean that that's like Figuring if you can figure out the magic formula for how to have training that actually works like that, that's living the dream right there. And most evaluation systems for training suck. Um, we had the the ever popular smile sheets. It's like, you know, was it sad phase training or was it, you know, elated phase with horns and whistles? And none of that has anything to do with efficacy. That's just how did I feel today? And did I like my trainer? Was the candy good? You know what I mean? So um, talk to me about what you've learned that actually the, the, the great truths of what makes training efficient. Um, well, efficient is one thing. Efficient is really about getting the right people trained at the right time. Okay. Right. You forget what you've learned in seven days. Okay. And, and actually in seven days, you've forgotten 80%. So you start forgetting as soon as you leave training uh, or as soon as you click the close button in your learning management system. Um, so it's really just efficiency comes from making sure you've got the, like we like to say, uh, the right content, getting to the right people at the right time. Okay, Align that makes sense. Up, you've got efficient training. Um, kind of effective training really goes back to your planning in the beginning and partnership with the stakeholders that are saying, we have a problem, we feel training is the solution. And you have to first like, well, is training the solution? Like, right. <laughs> or so you we just have training a problem that yeah. all of our people are really mouthy and we feel like some communication training is the way to fix it. I, I've had so many managers try to fix me yeah. with communication and assertiveness training. I am unfixable, as it turns out, Ryan. Some things are just, you know, your character. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, how do you determine something that is something that is fixable with training? Well, you know, you kind of take a performance co consulting approach uh, mm -hmm. and look at all of the factors that could be affecting uh, the the behavior. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that that behavior is measured somehow. You know, if you, you know, have this behavior you feel is incorrect and you feel it's a knowledge or skill gap leading, contributing to that behavior. And we go in and we want to look at, well, what else is affecting that behavior? Is it an incentive? Um, is it um, a process? Uh, you know, is it some other initiative that's, this is the fallout? Sure. Um, and looking at the whole picture and then validating whether or not there really is a knowledge or skill gap. Um, you know, it could just be that they need to like throw out a competition with $100 gift cards and they'll fix their problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and I, so th that's so interesting to hear because I guess that's very much the system that I'm used to. Like there's a lot of meetings, there's a lot of handholding of, hey, maybe you should just be a better manager or maybe you should hire different kinds of people that are less mouthy. I don't know. Um, and it's just very consultative. And I guess I'm both heartened and disappointed that there isn't some like magical technical solution where you can like type five factors in and it's like, hucha, 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 here's the correct answer to solving that issue in your team. I, I was yeah. hoping you had some secret like, talent management software program that you uh, developed or utilized it's just classic performance consulting and you know making sure you've you've asked all the right questions i mean when you do it over and over again it becomes yeah second nature and you know i i did that for a while in my career before i ended up in in learning operations but uh you know it's kind of going back to those roots of yeah going through performance consulting and taking a good you know uh, human performance improvement pro approach uh, to the problem and getting really good partnership with their stakeholders, making sure they're committed to it, um, making sure they know how to define the problem. They have a way to define the problem. And often what we do that I think a lot of groups don't do, if they haven't, if they aren't able to define the problem, I mean, I've got a measurement team. I come in and say, okay, well, here's some pro bono uh, business intelligence. We're going to just build these metrics out for you. 
um, to so we can clearly define that problem and, and get a baseline. So, you know, we, we take that approach and then going through a really good, you know, uh, if, if it is identified as a training solution or part of the solution needs to be training, uh, take a really good design approach, um, making sure you don't only design for transferring the learning, but also, you know, we take into account all of the, you know, the last 30 years of research around training effectiveness yeah. and make sure there's that big, all that support around the time of application. So the managers know how to um, reinforce it because, you know, research shows that managers are the number one differentiator on people successfully applying learning on the job and it's sticking long term making sure you've got the managers engaged that there's plenty adequate time and resources and they've got notes and cheat sheets available to them you know when when it's time for them to apply it and incentives in place for good application and um you know lots of gamification type tools make it that works great right you know make leaderboards and badges and things like that all kinds of things to make it fun and, uh, you know, I like to kind of follow the Kirkpatrick approach of, you know, making sure that you're you're supporting and reinforcing and monitoring. You've, you've got you're checking all those boxes. Um, so, and that is the training design. It's not just the hour they spend in training yeah. or the four hours. It's the subsequent 60 to 90 days. Yeah. You have to design the whole picture. And I. So one of the things that you talked about there briefly, but is one of my favorite things that's happening in organizations is gamification. I personally feel like if in the next 30 years, everything in business gets gamified, I'm in. Like, yeah. I, just sign me up completely. Um, as you know, like my my real jam is is Talonac, um, and that's my space and I love it. And um, there is a movement finally in terms of candidate experience to gamify the application process mm -hmm. and that within that you can incorporate a lot of skill assessment and personality you know alignment uh, metrics and all of that and i think that that is the most interesting and and exciting thing that is happening personally in this space full stop because everything else is just kind of new versions are doing the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that this is something that is genuinely new um, and that's super exciting to me. Talk to me about gamification of training for you guys and, and how is that working? And are you as excited about it as me? Am I the only nerd here? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great tool. I, I mean, it really works well if it's something that's oh, like the, the training projects, just to be honest, that I hate the most are like, we're rolling out a new system to the whole company. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, those are like, you know, that when we, you know, those are like usually there's no winning. No. Everyone's going to be upset about the change. There's never enough change management and they take it all out on the training. So, um, so that, you know, projects like that, you know, we, we had this new uh, revenue reporting standard we had to uh, adhere to and train the whole finance department on uh, like a year or two ago. And there was a new system that we had, like, I don't know, HCL or some vendor developed for us. So this whole thing was attached to like an agile, you know, platform development at the same time. So we couldn't really like train them at the exact time. So one, it's kind of dry content. Yeah, it's a dry. new system. It's a lot of change. We're asking people who are already maxed out to use a new system and learn a new system. So it's about but, money and numbers, which nobody yeah. like. <laughs> Yeah. That's the lat, like that's the thing that you push off yeah. to the end of the month because nobody wants to do it yeah. anyway. So yeah. you know, and usually it's like, oh great, a new process. You know, let's highlight the efficiencies that is driving. Well, it's not really driving any efficiencies. It's gonna take. I'm like, oh come on, <laughs> help us out here. So, anyways, we um we uh we did we ended up coming up we ended up developing a mobile game. So our problem was, look, we were we've got to train it earlier than they're going to be able to use it because of the agile release cycle they're doing with the software so we need to keep it fresh in their minds for like a month or two so we came up with using this mobile game that was kind of like candy crush and uh except it would throw like questions at you about the training and right. there was a whole leaderboard and everything and then um so we kind of started that and that people were really getting into that but we noticed there was only like 50 percent participation 
And it was funny, we we're having like VPs, you know, doing this mobile game, competing Either, against each other yeah. on the on the leaderboard. And leaderboard was very public. And uh, but then the we got the finance uh, VP to say to throw money in, like essentially like like I think it was five you know, hundred dollar yeah. gift cards or something. Yeah. Nice. And the top people on the leaderboard got gift cards. Oh, my gosh. It just took off like wildfire at that point. Nice. And um, we we did like in some A-B testing, we did a control group that wasn't involved uh, because this was our first time kind of using this type of gamification. And, you know, this the statistical significance was huge. The gamification uh, had like an 80% higher knowledge retention and um, I think like 60 or 70% better um, application on the job than the, the control group that wow. didn't get it. So. You know, because Poor we control would like, group. Yeah. Did they at least get a, some kind of a gift card? Because I feel like it's not fair being the control group who didn't get to compete. Like that, I call BS on behalf of the control group. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, yeah, I mean, they were, uh, I, they were given um, like a gift at the end. Yeah, so uh, because like they were unable to participate in the. Same. Yeah, but it was great because it, you know, this is our one, and we, this happens in learning all the time. You get one shot to prove a technology that yeah. you've got initial funding for. So that enabled us, you know, this is kind of the part my team comes in of like, hey, we need to prove the effectiveness of this platform. So we set all that up so that we could come out of there with a solid ROI and say, yeah, this, you know, using this kind of gamification platform, you know, results in, we know it's going to result in higher retention when we have this kind of scenario, and it enabled us to keep licensing that uh, software. So, so was it a software tool that was already had like some sort of an AI in there that you could put in the parameters that you were trying to do, and then it would just like, and here's a game for you. So it's yeah. not like you're contracting with some game developer to be like, hey. Yeah, it was from um, a popular company called eLearning Brothers. Mm -hmm. I think their product is called Training Arcade, and they have a bunch of different games, and you pick one, and you kind of customize it to your, uh, yeah, what, what you know, to your program. Yeah. So. That is so cool. So have you now gotten to do that more times? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've used it, and it comes in handy for, you know, these software releases. So, which are always kind of challenging to keep people excited about. And other gamification, you know, we have some big, um, uh, you know, code of conduct and ethics training are extremely important in a pharmaceutical company. I, I so, um, so, you know, we do some gamification, like some badging type uh, things for some of those programs, like an Olympics type thing uh, where, um, you know, you get like a, like a, departments based on how quickly they they achieve compliance get like a gold silver bronze and then they get like a pizza party or something i don't know what they're doing this past year of course no there's no pizza parties happening but you know I mean, there could be just a whole bunch of little <laughs> mini pizza parties <laughs> my i have my husband's company for christmas this year in the uk through this like giant Christmas party that was like four hours on Zoom. They had a DJ who spent the whole time going on the Zoom camera. Like you, I can't, however much they paid that DJ, it was not enough to have that job of just sitting there. So, I mean, maybe it's that. Maybe you guys are, are having <laughs> Zoom discotheques all over. That would be yeah. a fascinating choice. <laughs> Well, we're starting the planning for that this year's version of that program, so I'm sure they'll come up with something. You know, training people are super creative, so. Yes, and so I've always been one of those. I, I know you're surprised to hear that, that I was in the, the crazy, like, and I, I always found that as a trainer, one of the things that I had to push against with my, my fellow collaborators was that people would have like, oh my God, I had this great idea. If we did this activity, that would really teach people this thing. And I was like, just, I feel your enthusiasm and yay for enthusiasm. But also maybe, and this is just me spitballing here, maybe we start with objectives for the class and then 
we work on activities that achieve that objective, not just activities that we think might be an interesting moral lesson <laughs> for people in the greater world. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I feel like you're on sort of the extreme end of the, the analytics of the, me and my fellow trainers, I think probably would have made your head explode that we probably would have could have done with a little more uh, Ryan in our cohort. Well, I mean, <laughs> engagement is extremely important. So keeping people's energy up, you know, we've, we've been able to prove in in-person sessions, icebreakers having a huge impact. So, you know, research shows that if your learners are um, engaged um, and happy, they learn more during your session. Yeah. So all of that stuff, um, it's great. And I used to like developing activities as well back when I, I was a instructional designer. So, you know, it's all that matters, like getting people up out of their chair, moving, you know, keeping that level of engagement up throughout the session. And we measure that. We, we, we go ask, you know, we, we ask people, you know, how much they felt they were engaged. We have, when our, we have some virtual platforms that actual measure engagement, like uh, Adobe Connect has, it, it has an algorithm that scores people each minute on it knows if you if the the wind the training window is not your active window it knows if you've minimized it nice. it knows if you're if you're if you've got your camera off if you haven't said anything the longer mm. that you don't say anything to your microphone your points go down oh my and, god and then we get a whole data output of that from that session so you know we can go in on our adobe connect sessions and actually say this session had this percent average engagement versus this session. And then, you know, when you look at that in the aggregate over dozens of sessions and, and align it with instructors and combine that with the survey data, you know, you can start to triangulate on, you know, where you have engagement challenges or, wow, they're off the charts over here. What are they doing? You know, yeah. let's replicate that. <laughs> so. Wow. All of that. Yeah. So I, I feel like that's a deep rabbit hole that we've yeah. gone down on my own nerding. So I'm going to just pull it back a little bit. Sure thing. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is um, diversity and inclusion is huge right now. And one of the interesting, I always think, statistics about HR that include the big umbrella, so including L&D, Talent Act, all of that is that it is majority female until you get to the director and above level, at which point it abruptly switches and once again becomes majority male. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I'm in a learning space which is predominantly female, even in leadership, but, um, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, this has been studied so much in the past few years. And, you know, in the UK for global companies, like, you know, we have like in the UK, we have to be measuring and reporting out on, uh, you know, our, our, our gender diversification and our, our pay equity, our pay equity mm -hmm. gaps and things like that. So, um, and, you know, I'm proud that PPD is actually doing very well. Our company is 76% female. And um, which is amazing the, for a science. Yeah. And as you go up uh, the I think, you know, I think at the VP level, it's like 50 50, which is amazing, you know, yes. and I'm I'm very proud of that. So um, and that part of it, I think it's an outlier. Why? Yeah. Well, I mean, clinical research tends to lean more female. It, it gets a lot of people. Uh, I think, you know, with like nursing and clinical type backgrounds, which are heavily female. Um, but part of it, I think, is it attracts people who are very um, mission-oriented on improving health and uh, just generally caring for public health. Um, a lot of people, you know, I come from the cutthroat tech sector, so <laughs> uh, it's been kind of a, a refreshing, you know, breath of fresh air for me where there's so many people I work with where their intrinsic motivation for working is the the outcome of what we do, it's not their salary, right? It's not their their position. They are, their first thing they come to work for every day is 
they believe that they're helping improve public health across the world. And, um, you know, I think that that, uh, you know, also, you know, there's a gender offset on that as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in learning, I think as you go up through the levels, you do see a lot more women involved because learning tends to lean that way. Um, but really, I think it goes back to implicit bias. You know, I have a psychology background and I'm a big IO psych nerd and um, implicit bias is, is is very, very strong. And even though I'm, you know, being married to an anthropologist and a hardcore feminist, um, <laughs> you know, I when I had, you know, when I had two daughters um, and my first daughter, so even being ultra aware and as objective as I can and being kind of trained to be um, an, an objective social scientist, um, it was I found myself my own implicit bias biases with my daughter all the time, you know, just like, you know, calling inanimate objects he, right? Mm -hmm. When it, it's, it, it's neither, it's an inanimate object, you know, like when I was watching WALL-E and they've, they've put gender, uh, they've ascribed gender to robots, you know, I mean, come on. Uh, so I think it's that implicit bias that runs so deep. And when you gets into like executive situations, women are interrupted more. Women are not um, given as much, um, you know, when, if you've got, if you're in a boardroom setting and, uh, you know, there's women and men wanting to interject, men get the floor. I've, I've seen it happen all the time in, yeah. in my career. And um, even in an environment where people try to be very aware of it. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. I used to work for a great uh, VP um, and she she talked about that. You know, she went to a South by Southwest um, talk on this and she's like, I didn't really think about it until I went to this talk. And then when I went back to work the next day, um, especially on conference calls, how um, apparent that was where, you know, I'm interrupted more, um, I'm talked over. Um, and also just this, there's like an implicit bias. If you, if you are a tall male, you know, people listen to you more and you're in charge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to be honest with a training, with a training background, like, and being six feet tall, uh, <laughs> white male, I mean, just completely transparent here. Yeah. I can come in and just own a boardroom. So the number one thing I try to do is just give the floor to, to the women in the room. If I'm presenting to a room full of executives um, and and there's female executives sitting there, I will defer to them for questions first, right? So those are the types of things that I try to do. Uh, but I think corporations all need to be doing extensive implicit bias training. I'm pushing that, you know, uh, as much as I can uh, where I'm at. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that they're starting to do that, you know, in police departments and stuff for racial bias. But I think implicit bias training for for gender, for racial, for all all different types of categories is what's needed to help people, you know, grow beyond that and, and just to be aware of it. So. so I'm a big implicit bias nerd as well. My master's is in queer theory and it was about uh, exactly that. Um, uh, my master's work was on implicit bias in language about feminine and masculine. So I feel you a thousand percent there. And one of the things I think was really interesting, I heard recently, some of the, the most effective buy-in moment for implicit bias training in police officers was to step away from using race, but instead to use women. And so they've been doing scenarios where they come in there's a woman holding a gun and they are like oh they all like she'll you know holstered their weapons and were like ma'am are you okay and then she turns and shoots them because their implicit bias assumes yeah. that the woman is the victim and then from the the study that i heard like that was really eye-opening that oh my god i you're right Clearly, I do have things that I assume, and that once they had recognized that, they were able to engage with that training. And I just, I think that everything in the implicit bias area is so interesting, 
and so complicated and hard. Like it is the most difficult thing to overcome. Again, I'm hyper aware and yet I catch myself doing it too. I have two boys, so we have the exact opposite problem. (laughs) You know, and uh, my my boys are in a uh, loving all things tutu and pretty dresses phase. They really like to swish in pretty dresses. And when they first announced that they wanted a pretty dress, um, my husband, who is a very enlightened guy, was like, <clears throat> and then he was like, and then I breathed and I yeah. was like, it's just clothes. <laughs> and he was like, he said, you know, intellectually, I know that I don't have a problem with that, but there is just this implicit thing inside me that goes, if my kid wears a dress, people are going to pick on him. And that's not okay. He said, it wasn't that I had a problem with a boy in a dress. It was that my immediate thing was, I can't let him do that because people, what will people say around it? And it, but it's all tangled up in there, which is just even trying to help him unravel it. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. trying to work with an entire, you know, police force or workforce yeah. to help them unravel it. And it's tough. You know, a lot of people don't want to admit that they are getting, you know, they just don't want to admit that they of privilege, right? They don't want to acknowledge that. Like, that's the first step. I love the activities where it's like um, you, you get like a trainer or somebody that says they, they walk across the room or, or outside works best like a field and they say, look, I've got, you know, $500 cash in my hand and we're going to race. You, you guys are going to race. First person who grabs this out of my hand gets the cash. But I'm going to ask you a series of questions first. And if yeah. you can answer yes to any of these questions, you take a step forward. And all the questions are like privilege related. Yeah, I've you know? seen those videos. Yeah. I love that exercise. So and. I, that's something that's, I think, eye-opening for a lot of people to understand privilege. And then I think once, you know, you can understand privilege um, and you can you can accept that uh, for yourself, that part of where, how, where you've gotten into the position you have is simply because, you know, of your privilege, then I think it's a little bit easier to, to start to be more aware of your implicit bias. Um, so... So I want to go back to something you said earlier that I thought was really interesting. You said that the majority of the people that you work with are not just there for the paycheck, but that they really genuinely think that PPD is, is going to heal the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guys psychologically as an organization balance that with the media and pop culture uh evil big pharma um trope that we we keep hearing over and over again well big pharma are our clients so our job <laughs> is we're well, a clinical research <laughs> organization so our job is to once they have a patent we get it through approval we get it we do the human trials and so our job really is to make sure that um the all of the um, regulatory requirements are met in the testing all the data is valid and you know ethically collected and um, everything goes through independent review boards and everything um to through to get through the approval process and this is you know made the headlines a lot as they've expedited it a bit for covid vaccines but um you know it's extremely important process and it has a really long history they in what they call good clinical practices so um you know so yeah our our job is to make sure that we get we that that effective drugs that are actually effective get make it to market that you know you know protect human safety um and uh so yeah our part of it is a little bit easier to contend with um, there are some antics with, you know, uh, many of the big companies, um, but from from our perspective, we're constantly working on all these amazing, um, all these amazing studies, you know, um, you know, vaccines that are going to save, you know, I mean, it's funny, like COVID is so small um, compared to all the other things that uh, that comes through our doors, right? Uh, oncology. Um, treatments and and medications and chemotherapies and 
all kinds of vaccines that, you know, like the dengue fever vaccines, which are going to save like a million people a year, you know, things like that. So, um, and COVID, of course, you know, we, we, it's public knowledge that PPD executed the trials for uh, the Moderna vaccine. So we did the, I think the phase two and three trials for that. Um, so that's just an example of something that has just a huge impact um, on the world. Uh, and, you know, we oversaw making sure that it was tested appropriately and it's going to be safe. So, so I, I think that one of the things that's been interesting for me as a learning point as a white woman um, in COVID, I did not realize I was aware of the historical ill treatment of um racial minorities with regards to these kind of trials. But I was not aware that that has knock-on effects on modern populations and that there's an ongoing mistrust, which it's one of the, for me, that was one of those well done, Michelle, <laughs> kind of light bulb moments of all this. And I felt really dumb for not having realized there's definitely something that I learned what, if anything, do you think organizations like PPD, though not necessarily them specifically, need to do to to fix that and, and to, to heal that wound and, and bring people back in? I think probably just better communication. I mean, we, we are, um, our biggest challenge is getting patients, right, <laughs> for trials. Uh, find even, it, you'd be surprised how hard it is, even when you get to phase three and you actually have um, real patients in need that need this therapy, and it's hard to get, find them and to connect them with the trial. Um, and what makes it even harder is, you know, matching the uh, demographics of your enrolled patients with the demographics of your population. Um, for the COVID vaccine, for example, uh, the NIH-led studies uh, through for the Moderna vaccine, Pfizer did their own thing, but um, they they their challenge was, look, the trial subjects has to match the United States population, uh, the demographics. So, and we were able to achieve that. Um, our AES uh, group did a great, uh, great job with that. So I think that um, that's making that more transparent to patients. I think transparency to patients is the number one thing. Um, I have a own personal example after learning about this entire industry coming to PPD. Um, uh, you know, there we in the United States, anyways, we we have a lot of vaccines you give your children, and they want to give them all at one time. You know, here's those four shots, two in each leg, and you're done, right? Um, and all these combo shots, but there's actually several different brands. All the big pharma companies to have their own version of like the the DTaP vaccine, right? And they all have their own. Um, pros and cons and likelihood of adverse effects. And all that data is public, but nobody is communicating that to parents and to patients. Um, same thing with like shingles vaccine, like people in their 60s right now are being told you need Prevnar 13 and you need to get the shingles vaccine. And, um, you know, but they're not educating them on all the information out there that went into testing it, proving that it's effective. Any, any drug or vaccine or anything you take, you can go Google the drug name, FDA insert, and you'll find all the FDA published information for that trial. And you can go see all the I'm people that it was tested on. I'm so. gonna push back to you on that a little bit, Ryan, yeah. because that is dense information. Like I'm a fairly bright, well-educated <laughs> woman, and I struggle right. to get through some of that. When we're talking about people who, mm -hmm. through circumstance, choice, and you know, in, institutional racism and everything yeah. else, are in a position of not as much disposable time, right? Not necessarily access to the internet, and lower ed educational standards that that make it harder to yeah. penetrate that kind of literature. I mean, I feel like that's well, not really a realistic standard. As a like, good as a, good, like, as, a, as a good democratic libertarian, I like to label myself, <laughs> I'm all for just transparency. You know, when you get a vaccine, you get a sheet um, uh, that's governed by the, the CDC 
about that vaccine, right? But it needs more information and it needs it even, you know, have you ever, like, if you get name brand cereal at the store, you notice they put, like, aside from the nutrition label, they by law have to put the the key nutrition indicators, I like to call them, K&Is across the top, how much sugar it has, you know, uh, so on and so forth, right across the top. It's all about just making, simplifying that and making it, you know, that transparency easier for consumers. And we are consumers of medicines. And right now they, you know, a lot of that is, it's like, well, just trust your doctor and your doctor hasn't even read the FDA insert usually. So I, I think what needs to happen is more transparency um, and that information needs to be simplified and streamlined so that it's easy to understand, easy to digest, just like we've done over the past 50 years with nutrition. That's a great use case, I think. Um, and it enables consumers to make great decisions with very little investment. We need the same thing for medicines, in my opinion. Okay, so what I heard is we need a crib sheet for anything that you ever take that makes it really like, if you take this side effect, death <laughs> potential. And so that people can really, in like, you know, five seconds or less, just make a smart choice. I think like you, see the, you see the commercials, it's like, you know, it's a joke now. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Potential side effects include potential side effects include everything, you know. Yeah. And but if you actually go read the FDA insert, each one of those has a, a likelihood, mm -hmm. right, based on the trials. So there's a point oh 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 one percent that you have death through diarrhea, right? Um, yeah, but it's <laughs> like point oh yeah. Go, officially. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, but you know, you're more likely just to have like, um, you know, you're more likely to have maybe. You know, you could actually have a five or ten percent chance of getting a heart arrhythmia, right? So they're so, so you know they're all mixed together in the advertisement, but and it makes you kind of dismiss it all together. But if you the data is there, and we need to make that easily uh, more easier to digest. To your point, uh, for the the people taking those drugs, and I think that um, that that's really the challenge from a. And you know, companies aren't going to do that themselves. We need you know leadership uh, within. Um, our governing bodies, just like we did with food labeling, to do that with drug labeling. So, so let's talk about um, ease of access of information in a slightly different context. Um, you're a hiring manager. Mm -hmm. Do you you see resumes, etc.? I don't know if you heard working for PPD, but there's a pandemic uh, <laughs> out there, um, and so the there's a lot of people in the job market. So my guess is that right now you have a glut of candidates for any position that your team has available. When you see these scores of resumes <laughs> that cross yes. your computer screen, um, what for you right now in, in at this moment in time, when you're looking at them, I would think that you look at them probably a little differently than maybe you have at other times. My experience of hiring managers from many years of doing this is that the more candidates they have, the less time they have to look at each one. <laughs> so their preferences on what they're looking for change in those moments that when you only have two, suddenly they care about that Oxford comma on page three. Um, other days they do oh, not. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I spend about 30 seconds okay. looking at a resume because if I get a stack of them, like I, I'll get, you know, virtually, right? I'll get, you know, 15 attachments on an email or, or we use, you know, Oracle, you know, they'll be all, they'll just be a whole row of them on the screen. So yeah, my first pass is like 30 seconds. Um, right. And that's as a hiring yeah. manager, which is like that—that's a recruiter kind of zone there, uh, right? That's not the yeah. place you want to be. Well, don't, I don't mean, advertise that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I—it's it, a big part of my process because, um, especially for the area that I hire in, um, more your your resume or CV for me is more about you know there's the things you check real quick just to glance. Okay, yeah, education, breadth of experience. What's their latest job? But more, it's how are they presenting this information to me? I'm usually hiring for analytics people, right? Yeah. Or training people. And how you communicate on that page is 99% of your the your interview right there. Because yeah. I'm hiring you to communicate to all stuff on a page to people effectively. 
Um, so that's kind of where it starts for me. Like if this, if it is dense or not laid out well, or, or is just not, um, you know, it's just a wall of, of words, you know, um, uh, or it's just, um, you know, for each job, it's it's just this long narrative, right? You know, exactly. Every responsibility you know, they ever had. I'm looking like for each each job I scan real quick. I'm looking at like, what did you do, and so what? What did yeah. you do, and what did that result in, right? And the faster I can absorb that information, the more I I lean into that candidate, right? They make my my second pass stack. You know, I can't tell you how much time I spend trying to convince clients that having there's just having a badly formatted resume, never mind the bad writing that goes into it, but just the bad format, the harder you make it to figure out who you are, are you any good, and what is the context for your experience? So, okay, you've worked in L&D for 10 years. There's a big difference between delivering training at, you know, a 50 person company and your training is the onboarding. Yeah. And I am senior technical trainer at Google. <laughs> for five, yeah. that, like, they're just no comparing those two yeah. jobs, really. They have the same title, they're roughly in the same sphere, but there's just nothing on that level. Um, I remember. Um, with the company I worked for in, in the UK, we went from uh, having an expectation of training about 30 to 40 people a month, which felt like we were really doing a lot, to having an expect. I know, I know, don't laugh at me, <laughs> um, to having an expectation of doing like 250 a month. That's and a good number. <laughs> live and in-person training. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and these were like <laughs> four-hour classes that we were teaching so it was it was a lot and we were just like that's impossible no one alive could do those numbers and i think it really taught me a lot about that the need for those numbers and that context because you you have people who are like i've taught exactly this before why am i not getting interviewed well i mean if i can't figure out that you taught exactly this before at a place that is comparable to where you're applying now then that's why you're not getting it. So I, I think that 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 uh, that is reassuring to me to know <laughs> that that is your takeaway on that as well. Yeah, and it's kind of you know, and then once I narrow that stack down, that first pass, you know, um, then I I take a little bit of a closer look. Um, but really, my I kind of save that thorough review for the interview. I like to just get people in interviews as fast as I can, right? In a lot of the talent markets around the world, I unfortunately haven't been hiring in the US a lot recently, but like in Bulgaria and Manila and, and India, man, you you lose people like that, Yeah. right? So, you know, it's all about just like acting quickly um, and getting people into an interview. And that's where like all of my hiring really goes into the interview. And then I more thoroughly go before the right before the interview usually i'll block off on my calendar like 15 minutes to thoroughly go through their cv make notes you know i'm going to ask them about that and about that right or i'm going to you know i'm going to ask them generally a situational question and they better bring up something from here right (laughs) from that (laughs) job right that's what i'm looking for so um i think that it's um that's where kind of the so yeah, I'd say a resume has three stages for me, right? That first pass, then I usually sort that deck a second time, and then those people go to interviews, and I'm very thorough on it right before the interview. That's what so. we care about, the Oxford comma. Yep. Is, is the well, <laughs> I joke, but yeah. I have actually known yeah. hiring managers to reject people over comma placement. and Not I, me. <laughs> maybe if i'm hiring an editor but uh you know yeah. you, you know i'm not perfect myself i'm no editor level uh so i have an editor look you know review my resume but yeah have an editor review your resume have a professional <laughs> service like yours um you know help you with your resume and your linkedin and uh you know some of my 
you know, former peers and colleagues and even some of my mentors. Um, I have one mentor, she's amazing, but she was kind of out of looking for a job. She had not really done that in a long time. So yeah, she yeah. hired someone to do her LinkedIn. She yeah, didn't absolutely. have one before. And it's it's amazing. It's like, I need, I need mine like that, you know? We'll talk later. Uh, but yeah, and I think that for the other thing is, especially when you hire in other markets, you know, when you're hiring non-native speakers to work in an English environment, there's a huge difference between spoken English and written business English. And there are people who have, are fine in a spoken English context. Like that is not a concern. And yes, they are verbally fluent, but man, does their written English suck. And it's just a terrible first impression on that resume. And it always makes me really sad for them. And it's such a delicate thing to have to feedback like, friend, you're saying you're fluent in English. This resume does not reflect somebody who speaks really great English. And so I think that, you know, that's another, I would think that that would be a challenge for you as well, hiring in global markets that you probably have to have a lot of different tolerances for that and, and understanding that it this is not their first language. And so you have to deal Usually with that. that's not apparent on the resume by the time it gets to me, right? I usually, you know, tell our recruiters, I need good, you know, we need really good communicators for this role. Um, but the, I'm often surprised when we get to the interview, you know, They've passed through recruiting. Um, they their resume looks great. You know everything they've given us looks great, and then, you know, they're having a live translate in their head. And when I'm putting them on the spot with an interview question, and that's kind of where it kind of goes south. Um, often is um, sometimes I'll even try some idioms to see if they they're how fluent they are in that. So um, it, that's more for me is like a, the challenge is more in Eastern Europe for me mm-hmm. um, or, you know, maybe Japan or China. In China, it's like the opposite. They're really, their written English is very good. Uh, but when you get on the phone verbally is harder, right? Mm-hmm. A lot harder for them. So, um, so yeah, it really just depends on the region. And, you know, you go to like the Philippines. I have, we do a lot of hire, I have a big team there. They're so American. <laughs> <laughs> you know they can even imitate our accents and it's like you know um it's like the complete other you know opposite from china right their spoken english is very good uh so yeah it's, it's depends on where you're hiring and um yeah for me it often comes up in the interview so that makes sense uh, so is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we that we do cover that you have definitely wanted to talk about um, you know, I really am just here to share, you know, my experience. Um, I think that Which you have done beautifully, by the way. Uh, Thank you. I think that um, my career has been pretty linear, right? Uh, so I, I don't, I can't share how to handle certain types of events in your career. But I'd say the one thing that I have done that that might, you know, be something a lot of people are facing right now is just taking a big leap to another job. When you're you're in a good job, you're secure, maybe you've been at a company for a long time. 12 years, and, for example, yeah. with a big tech and you, company. You decide, you know, I'm going to go to another industry and I'm just going to completely try something new. Um, and, you know, I just, I think that that's probably the best thing that I've ever done. You know, I could have stayed where I was and continued to to move forward there. Um, but I think um, getting and it's it's impact it's affected me so much that I actually consider that in my hiring now. Okay. You know, um, I kind of lean more towards people who have maybe spent five to seven years and have experience in a couple of different industries versus someone who's been at a company for twenty years, right? Okay. So I, I kind of now lean more towards that because. You know, I you get that diversity in leadership styles. You get that diversity in, you know, uh, corporate processes, and um, I think that's important. Now, I still think it's bad when I see the the job hopper. You know, they've got mm-hmm. a new job every year, every two years. 
that, you know, I kind of recoil at that a little bit, but I think like that five-year mark, seven-year mark. Um, Get out, it, stretch your legs, do something yeah, new. Try something new. Absolutely. I'm going to have to challenge myself with that pretty soon. So but... What comes next for you? <laughs> I mean, where do you, um, what, where do you go from here? I've got the young kids right now. So like I'm <laughs> treading water. Uh, you know, it, it's tough for me to like, I'm, I'm one of those people that I, I like to just, my whole career has been at 150% and I'm like trying to make a hundred percent right now. So, uh, but you know, it's just the stage of the life I'm at. So I'm, I'm kind of sitting still for now, developing in place. I like to call it. Um, but yeah, as the kids get older, um, and we're more mobile again, um, you know, We'll see where the state of my industry is at, um, where, uh, you know, I probably could see myself maybe going back to technology again um, or maybe trying some new sector. Um, I'm more attracted now after being a PPD. I think there's a long future for me at PPD, but after being a PPD, I'm really now into the, the mission oriented companies now. So I could see myself, the thing that would probably pull me away from PPD would be a, a, just a opportunity, an amazing opportunity or role that I see at a company that I really respect that I think is doing a lot of good in the world. So um, that's Great probably- Technology yeah. or nonprofits with an actual budget. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, I, I, there was a point in my career where I absolutely wanted to go work at a giant nonprofit like the Red Cross, but um, I, I I need a little bit more to support my family now. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> so. I completely understand having dabbled in the nonprofit. Uh, Can you world. imagine how much college is going to cost for our kids, right? Oh, it's going to be insane. No, my kids are going to trade school, Ryan. They're going to both be plumbers. That's the plan. Hey, plumbers and teachers. That's where I we're going. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I know plumbers that make more than I do. So right, Absolutely. So yeah. you will get your girls to be mechanics and my boys to be plumbers that can, like, form a company together. I can see it already. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think um, – but yeah, maybe later in life, uh, you know, I don't like, I don't think I'll ever be able to retire. Um, so, you know, probably, you know, moving into nonprofit sector then, or maybe into academia, um, eventually someday, you know, go get a PhD um, once I have time for that. So, uh, but yeah, I think that um, that's probably, you know, my long, long-term future. But in the meantime, uh, definitely continue to expand my breadth uh, of leadership and, you know, moving into the, you know, senior director roles, executive director, vice president, uh, probably next 10 years is the direction I'm heading. I definitely, that's a, that's, a, PPD is fantastic about that, about having lots of career growth um, opportunities. So, uh, but of course, you know, sometimes as the higher you get, the more, the, I have to remind people all the time, the, the higher you get and the further you get in the career, the longer it takes to get to the next level. And know? the fewer options there are there. Yes, like, exactly. There are fewer VPs yeah. than there are directors. Absolutely. So. so you're just fighting the odds at some point. <laughs> and, you just got to uh, survive. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's that classic curve that just kind of exponentially goes, shoots up with, you know, if, if, this, if this is time, and this is effort, it goes like that, right? Um, so, you know, the higher you get, the further in your career you get, you know, it slows down dramatically. So, um, and that, so yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, 10 years, I could maybe see two increases by then, right? You know, so that's just kind of where we're at as we're getting old, Michelle. <laughs> Why would you say that to me, Ryan? I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we are technically getting old. Um, <laughs> on that bombshell, I'm going to say thank you for your uh, time. <laughs> um, uh, we will have links to you um, uh, in the show notes and um, any other links that you would like us to add there. I really can't thank you enough. It has been fascinating and just a super nerdy treat for me. So. <laughs> 
Thank you very, very much uh, for joining us and uh, have a great evening. Yeah, you too. And ha happy to contribute. And anybody, you know, I'm sure you'll share my LinkedIn. Um, I'm a big advocate of sharing best practices and just talking to random professionals. That's why COVID has been killing me without my <laughs> conference circuit. But um, so, yeah, I, anybody who wants to reach out to me uh, with questions um, about my background or anything we've talked about, uh, I definitely encourage you to do so. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. You've been listening to Hey, I Want Your Job. For more on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for more insider info. Soon you'll be hearing us say, I'm Morgan McBride, and I want your job. And I'm Lydia Lunning, and I want your job. And I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job.